0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. Uh, good morning again. Um, let's go around and say our names. Uh, my name is Jim. Larry. Larry. Joe. Paul. Hal. Yeah. So, Justin. Carl. George. Dean. Douglas. Michael. Samuel, I. Paul. Ed. Don. Quick. Lee, Jack, David, David Ray, Cliff, <coughs> Robert, Paul, um, uh, Peter, and... Stephen, Mark, mm-hmm. David, David, uh. Anyone here for the first time? Great. Right. Welcome, everyone. Um, this morning we are. Um, to have our friend Howard speaking with us. Um, he will be generally the parts of his story uh, that pertain to his speech. I do know that he's a Southern California boy. He um, was a Lutheran prince, uh, minister, of uh, a very uh, successful and progressive and growing uh, Lutheran congregation in the South Bay, fremont area. And I, from an old friend whose father uh, was a Lutheran bishop who uh, ordained him, I know he was a very good dollars in that capacity. So, um, Howard, welcome, and thank you for sharing. Fellow brothers of the Sangha, um, thank you for the privilege of allowing me to be to this day. I do want, um, uh, for the sake of respect around um, the pain uh, that I have caused uh, by my story, Want to let you know that, um, those of you who may not know my story, is that uh, uh, I was uh, convicted of a felony sex offense against a -a 15-and-a-half-year-old minor in my congregation. Uh, His name is Dougie. Dougie was also a mentally challenged youth, which basically means... um, Dougie always reminded me of Forrest Gump as a teenager and I cared for him, loved him deeply. And I also um, broke my vow as an ordained uh, clergy person of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I broke my vow as a man who had been married uh, to a woman for 15 years in those actions. And acknowledge that um, uh, my, my behavior and my sexual misconduct may be a great source of pain, uh, maybe repulsion uh, to some of you. And I respect that. Uh, I understand that. And um, I honor that. And I honor it by um, creating a small space right now, maybe about 30 seconds, in which of silence, in which I uh, do a practice whenever I feel unsettled or out of my center or unbalanced. I go into my silence and I say my name three times, which is an ancient tradition from indigenous cultures around the world. You feel unsettled and and, uh, not on the middle way to stop, breathe, and say your name. I'm going to do that, encourage you to do that also. And in that period of silence, uh, whoever feels like maybe they need uh, not to be here um, because of the potency of this story, uh, please feel free um, to adjourn, maybe go to the other room or walk another path this day of meditation. And uh, I do not hold any uh, um, anger or hurt or resentment about that choice. sometimes I uh, could kick myself in terms of why did I accept this invitation to talk. I I don't like my story, much of it, but that's been part of my path is uh, owning it, understanding it as best as I can understand it, letting go of what needs to be let go of. Um, wrestling with the material that I need to wrestle with uh, towards my own path and uh, the path of enlightenment and uh, to somehow be in line with this universe which is moving. One of the great principles of Buddhism that's been a profound resource for me is the idea of impermanence. That the very nature of life, the very nature of creation is creation. It is movement. It is change. My personal belief, and it's kind of more of my Taoist side, is that that movement, in the the most general sense, is benevolent. It it is about life. It is about an evolution towards uh, the light. And so it compels me, propels me to stay in the rhythm, in the movement to learn from it and grow from it, to be changed by it and to change with it. So the reason I accepted the invitation to share a little bit of my story is in hopes that maybe it might reduce some of your suffering and uh, the suffering of others that is caused by our, our lack of skill around the path. I am a champion of the profound sense of lack of skill. And my conduct hurt um, many, many people. And as I speak to you this day, many of those people remain profoundly wounded. It's likely that many of the people will never recover um, from the loss of their pastor who they loved, from the sense of betrayal, uh, that I uh, triggered for them. The fact that they could never trust another clergy person again. And, uh, and I can't even imagine, uh, sometimes I do spend a lot of nights thinking about uh, Douglas, what he might be feeling and thinking of the harassment I'm sure that he took uh, at high school. Uh, I was extremely popular in my community, and uh, the case was extremely Uh, Hot and publicized and televised and everyday articles in the paper. And so I can imagine that for him and his family it must have been absolutely devastating and they continue to live in the midst of those wounds. Maybe the hardest part of this path is that I can't fix it for them. My whole life has been one as a healer I've prided myself in my capacity to be a resource for healing for others. And here I became one of the most profound violators and hurters. And I always ran in like uh, Superman with his cape on or Batman to rescue folks from their crises and their trauma. And here I created it for many people. So the remorse, and regret is very difficult to live with. I live with it every day try not to deny it, which is one of the biggest aspects of my personal growth, to let it wash, let it rise and wash out, rise and wash out much like the ocean, which has been my primary metaphor for healing, uh, the ebb and flow of the ocean I experience as the ebb and flow of the universe, and my work is uh, to deny that ebb and float, but to move with it. And as they say in the Buddhist tradition, in the middle way of it all. So when the regret comes, I dance with it. I give her a name, and I talk with her. But I can't fix it for the people that I wounded. And that's a very difficult shift for me. So I'm the fixer. I'm the healer. And uh, I can't fix it for them. It's, a, it's their work. And um, I have done everything in my power that I know of to make myself available. But it's up to those, um, uh, my victims, uh, to welcome a process of reconciliation with me. And I, spirit, my spiritual path is simply to wait. Until they are ready to do that work, if ever they are ready to do that work. Um, grief has been, you know, the biggest pain. The, the biggest fear that I live with is unconsolable grief. Um, you know, I I hurt my children. And uh, that, uh, in and of itself, is enough. Has caused me to think about uh, suicide on, on frequent occasions. I think about it. I don't have any agenda. I don't have any plan. I don't have any sense that I would make that choice. But I respect it. I and I respect uh, the pain that men and women feel when they're at that place in life. Um, And to look in the mirror and uh, realize that my two children um, were deeply and profoundly hurt by me, by this action, is uh, some of the the most difficult work that I deal with right now, and I have. It's been a seven-year process, seven and a half year now. In most indigenous cultures, uh, seven years represents a cycle of life transformation. And so (laughs) I've been going through transformation, and so have uh, so many other people around this case. So I've titled this reflection uh, From Pulpit uh, to Prison to Path, uh, towards Path. So I don't know what it is, but I open my heart to, to continue to learn. One of the uh, Zen teachings that's really been working me is um, a quote from Maureen Stewart. She's a Zen master and teacher at the Cambridge Buddhist Association. She passed on in 1990, but uh, she offered this word, which has been a real source of uh, inspiration for me. She says, everything is teaching us. Everything is teaching us. Everything is showing us this wonderful Dharma light. All we have to do is to open our eyes and open our hearts. All we have to do is open our eyes and open our hearts. And thus, uh, the resonance of Buddhism, the work of uh, waking up. Uh, I experience Buddhism as the path of nudges. Something always just kind of rubbing me on the shoulder to wake me up. Tickling me on the feet to wake me up. Sometimes knocking me over the head. Uh, not with a two-by-four, but a four-by-four, because four, uh, this is a pretty stubborn head. And um, the four-by-four four was a 35-year journey of repression around my gift as a gay man. And uh, I held it in for uh, 35 years, uh, I was a champion of controlling that. I had made this pledge that, okay, I, I am in the culture this uh, the, uh, quintessential symbol of the heterosexual successful male with a beautiful wife and children. And all the privileges that come with that, and my God, my God, there are enormous privileges and being white and um, uh, and in exchange for that I would fight for the liberation of gay and lesbian people in the Lutheran Church that was my the depth of my arrogance and, and I fought and uh, we gained a lot of quote unquote victories but it was really a lie because I was not out I was in the closets. And uh, I started to go through depressions. The basic principle in most psychologies is it takes more energy to keep stuff in than to let it out. And I started to grow tired of the battle of keeping in my sexual attractions. And I was always falling in love with men in my congregation. And, um, and I would just turn it off. And then I would start to go through these uh, depressions, about three-month periods. And I was very functional professionally. I could cross the T's, dot the I's, attend appointments, be quite lucid, and actually make an impact. Um, But emotionally, I was absolutely ice cold, not present at all. And my spouse, she began to notice this pattern also. And every time it centered around the fact that I had developed an attraction for a man in my congregation or in the community. And it would come up and it would bubble like like boiling water. It was fire. It was hot. Um, You know, just uh, almost pathologically would masturbate over these uh, images of him and me and But, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Too much at risk. Too much to lose. Uh, I had finally um, come to a place in my life where um, I knew I needed to come out because I had a sense I I was dying. I, you know, physically I was okay, but spiritually I was dying. My sermons were absolutely shit. And they were absolutely irrelevant. And uh, they were not focused and they were not graceful and they were not helpful and I was becoming more and more angry and so really when I think about the pulpit I think about two powerful places of repression in my life my gift as a gay man and around anger I held both of those in with a voracious uh, tenacity and they were both eating me alive from the inside out when I came out, I met a, a number of... All the gay men that I've met have been absolutely beautiful. And one, one of my friends, after he heard my story, says, man, the gay gods were pissed at you. So you're holding in that gift and that beauty for that long. They were just pissed. And they were going to make you pay for it. I I do want to say with, with absolute... Um, joy that I love being gay and, um, and I love the gayness of my being I just love being authentic for the last seven and a half years uh, being authentic, being true to, to the self that's evolving and that has been the most profound sense of a liberation for me And in that sense, I'm really grateful. But I also loathe my path, the way that I got there. And um, I guess my word of encouragement is that um, repression leads to great suffering. And to the degree that we can own the material uh, that's dwelling within us and give it expression, Is the degree by which we reduce the suffering for ourselves and the suffering that ourselves may cause others so if I can offer a word it's to say that you are light you are divinity and what is percolating and moving within you is nothing less than the universe seeking manifestation And whatever form that uh, expresses itself, give it articulation, give it color, give it expression. And if it goes against the culture, which being gay does, um, then um, find the middle path of expressing that in a way that honors your integrity and at the same time respects the fear in which it is born. Keeping both intention, tension, keeping both in tension, it feels like the middle way to me. Um, doesn't mean I give power to homophobia, but it means that I have learned to respect the fear that's underlined in it for people. And the more I'm able to connect and have compassion for that fear, the better I'm able to be in relationship with homophobic person people. And the deeper our relationship becomes, the magic is that eventually they begin to trust me as a human being, as a gay human being. who's not going to hurt them. Being a felony sex offender has given me the privilege of losing all status in this culture. I have zero status in this culture. Actually, I have the lowest status in this culture. As a matter of fact, in prison, which I guess if we were into status, if you have a prison record, that's fairly low on the status the scale of status in this culture in prison I was lower I was the lowest of the low Uh, child sex offenders are considered um, worse than than any other offender in uh, the penal system and so um, I have no status really to to try to work towards or try to achieve. It's also given me the capacity to have compassion for for just for everyone, or to work towards compassion for all people. There's nothing about my life that's righteous or proud and that I could be in competition with anyone over. What I immediately link to with other human beings is our mutual humanity and to work to have compassion uh, for their humanity and an understanding of their journey. As a result, it's given me an ability to have compassion for uh, George Bush, where, you know, in, in older days, in the days where I had status and power and could move mountains, I would contend with George Bush. I would fight him. Uh, I have been gifted with the privilege of looking at him as a human being who, like me, has multiple wounds, a lot of repression that's unrealized and remains remains buried. And I live also with the pain that he's in a place of great power, that his suffering impacts the suffering of the planet. Uh, But he is not a greater or lesser person than me. And uh, the same goes for for all people that I'm in relationship with. I don't feel like it's an abandonment of the anger that I feel, but my first entree to people is one of compassion, where before it was my first entree to others was one of judgment, competition, and a position. Um, I'm grateful uh, for that gift. Needless to say, I have some relationships with some very strange bedfellows, uh, some of which would not feel really comfortable in this community, but people who I love and work with and, and dance, do this great dance of life with. So it really is a story of repression of my giftedness as a gay man, repression around anger. I didn't handle anger well at all. I was a classic fighter or flighter, and and I fought and I would fight the mayors of Newark and Fremont and Union City for the rights of uh, what I considered marginalized people. I fought with the uh, before the uh, uh, consistently before the uh, Oakland uh, County Board of Supervisors, and um, and I had political aspirations. I was thinking about resigning the ministry and uh, going into the Green Party and hoping that I might be a Green Party candidate. And me and Matt Gonzalez one day would work uh, towards the White House. All of that uh, really got got shifted. I did have a plan to come out. We make plans... And God laughs. We make plans, and the universe, I think, chuckles. But I knew I had to come out. I knew because I was dying inside. I was unhappy with my marriage, unhappy with my ministry. It's just an unhappy individual, and I was pissed. I was just so hot about everything. And so I had a plan, and my plan was... Uh, I was going to take the call at the Stanford University Chapel. There, we have a Lutheran chapel there, and the call for pastor was there, open, and a number of people that approached me about taking the call. And I thought that's, that's it. I'm going to be the pastor there, and then I'm going to start PhD studies in in, in um, you know world religions, and I'm going to teach world religions, create a financial base uh, for my ex-spouse and children, and then. Come out and say, Well, you know, I'm also gay. That was my plan. And actually, I was quite close. I had done all the pr- paperwork. The bishops were starting to get um, involved in making things work. Um, I was on target. My relationship with uh, Douglas was a very appropriate professional relationship for three years. Um, and it changed. And it became sexual. The innuendos were sexual. The energy was sexual. Um, He's very physically, very healthy, mature. He'd already started shaving, um, and he was talking more about sex. And I knew that my responsibility as professional was to was to um, channel that energy in an appropriate direction. I chose not to. Uh, one of my great my lack of skill was the fact that I allowed the energy um, the sexual energy to to play and, um, and it just moved way too fast and I couldn't control it and we ended up engaging in two acts of uh, mutual masturbation I was arrested um, he told his parents I was arrested the rest is history. Uh, we did have to go to trial um, about uh, $60,000 later, and a, quite an um, average attorney uh, I faced 10 counts, and uh, pretty much based on my testimony, was acquitted of uh, seven of them and uh, convicted on three counts. I received a 44-month sentence. Um, the judge did show some mercy by allowing me to have half time. In most sex offense cases in the state of California, it's a mandatory 85% sentence. You serve 85% of the time. So I was given half time. That meant for every day that I served, I received another day of credit towards my term. And for that, uh, I'm grateful. And so um, my plan. It didn't didn't work and um, it happened extremely fast and one day I was sitting in the office and the next day the headlines read um, uh, popular pastor accused of molestation so I um, change was radical it was swift it was powerful it was intense and I knew that it, it was cathartic it, it had I mean it had these qualities of uh, archetypal um, uh, movements uh, things were happening way beyond my control faster than I could do to, to manage it and I uh, um, uh, So my work was To declare my truth It was to come out That that's what this was about I just had to continue to come back to that center And uh, I've, I've never been with an adolescent boy before I never have since I actually was in love with Paul was a 35 year old member of the congregation Uh, sadly it turned out he was straight and um, but it was a uh, it was an entree point it was my entree point into a gay world and um, I just encourage you uh, anyone listening or who may read this transcript that that it is a way of coming out it's not the best way And um, not only for your sake, but for the sake of so many others who are are so radically and continue to be radically impacted uh, by my choice and by my conduct, but the path of being true uh, to what's being called up within you, that is the work to me of spirituality. And it's the work of the spiritual community to create containers and, uh, and wisdoms around which your authenticity can have uh, a space and place. Uh, when I was in prison, um, one of the great gifts that I received was that I confronted my mortality. Um, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be killed. I spent uh, five months in uh, county jail when the courts worked out my sentence and then I was transferred to San Quentin State Prison where I resided for another five months and San Quentin is a um, um, Mm. Mm. Um, it is a uh, uh, tribute to our basest um, capacity as human beings uh, you know I, I need to be coached by a, a real author to try to describe uh, St. Quentin but uh, if you can imagine um you can imagine a honeycomb that's 50 feet high and from each of those little chambers comes this uh, soft fluorescent light just barely enough to create a hue popping out and that that is matched it's blended with these uh, garish um Rusty colors from uh, the lights that shone on the tears, and it's nighttime, and uh, there is um, screaming and uh, motherfucking this and motherfucking that. I'm going to cut your motherfucking throat tomorrow. And uh, about you know a good dozen fights were declared the night before, and. Uh, confrontations were planned uh, the next day Um, and you just sat with the tension of uh, that violence that was just about to implode Um, My experience of my brother prisoners is that we were all and are all um, wounded boys in um, powerful strong intense adult bodies But every one of them, like me, was a boy uh, emotionally who um, lived with and did not know how to relate to the wounds they carried as a boy, other than with their fists and their mouths and the weapons uh, that they made to carry out their rage. But it was just boys. They're all just human beings. We are all just human beings with, uh, you know, childhood wounds that remain um, salty, um, buried in your breast. Uh, I was fairly convinced that in that environment, being the lowest of the low, I was going to die. And, uh, you know, for, so it uh, created me, it gave me the privilege of writing my memorial statement. And I, I did. And. Um, I wrote to my children the letter that I wanted them to read upon my death. And it was, uh, it did two things. I mean, it was profoundly liberating. I became less afraid of the prison environment in which I lived. That what's the worst they can do to me is they're going to try to kill me. And um, the other thing I feared was being raped. and, And I still don't know today. If I had been uh, raped in prison, if I could live with that. I still have too much ego, uh, too much attachment to this body, um, to know if I could contend with that. That frightens me sometimes. But I knew I could live with, uh, I was okay with knowing that I might die. I was fairly convinced I was. So for a couple months, I was on the fifth tier. It's 50 feet above, on a, um, and below is a concrete floor. And the railing was only about 40 inches high. So three guys would just jump you, and, you know, during the movement from to the mess hall back, it would be fairly easy to get bumped over the rail. And... Um, Or the the staircases were all made of iron, and uh, they were extensive. And so, you know, I could see. There were a lot of ways in which I saw that this might happen. And there's multiple weapons. As much as uh, the guards try to keep containment of weapons, uh, the human spirit and brain is phenomenally creative. And some of the weaponry that I saw just blew my mind with its imagination and creativity. And it was quite, quite deadly. So I was given the privilege of writing my memorial statement, which I offer to you as a suggestion to visualize your death, your passing, and what it is that you want to say you know, to those who remain behind. So I found it, it took away a lot of the fear around the threat of dying. And It also helped me to kind of crystallize what how I understood my life and what it meant to me, and hope to convey uh, to others. Um, wow, I'm so glad this is getting over with. Uh, towards, I have a number of uh, prison stories that I wanted to share with you. I had a friend I asked about today, and I said, "What do you, what do you want? What can I share that's going to be really helpful?" And he says, "Well, you know, sh- share your story. But you know, was there sex in prison? He wanted to know about sex in prison, and uh, um, I didn't have any, but but I wanted to. Um, and I get approached on a number of occasions. It's very volatile, extremely dangerous conduct, and." Um, you have you have two threats. One is from the prisoners themselves around issues of possession, uh, whose whose lover is who. Secondly, um, you have the threat of the guards. If uh, if they want to get you, then um, and, and you get caught in an act of sex, well, that's a rape charge automatically, and you'd, in prison you'd be arrested. <laughs> You'd be arrested, and the district attorney would be contacted, and the state would file charges. You'd have no defense, and you'd be convicted of a rape charge. So there was a lot around it that was really very risky. I could say that if I had a longer sentence, um, that I would have approached uh, the idea with a a couple uh, of the men who I knew were were gay in the prison life. when I was finally transferred to Mule Creek State Prison, which is a high-security uh, prison just outside of uh, Ione, outside of Jackson, actually a spectacularly beautiful location, I had been there uh, a week, and um, sirens flew and and uh, everyone whistles were blowing. And when that happens, you have to get down, your face onto the ground, or you'll be shot. And they, after everyone was down, they rushed us all back to our cells. And it turns out that uh, someone had, had had their throat cut from here to here. And it turns out it was over a drug deal. Uh, one of the things I did learn is I mean, if you wanted to find trouble in prison, it was, it was there. But if you wanted to avoid it, there was a, some degree of respect around, you know, chill out. There was also an advantage of my age. I was immediately called OG, or old guy. And in prison, there is some degree of respect for the older prisoners. It creates some degree of safety. Um, when I was in prison, I was a teacher. I was given the privilege of, of teaching fellow inmates, and uh, which is a uh, dangerous position because it's one of status and that's the last thing you want to claim in prison is any status. So then you have to defend that status and that status will be challenged and it's an absolute guarantee. And uh, and uh, so being given the privilege of being a teacher was uh, had some danger linked with it and uh, but I wanted to teach. I'm, I'm, I love teaching, I'm a great teacher. And uh, so I was given the privilege of coaching men who were on the uh, GED track and men who were on the high school diploma track. And then I taught uh, Mexican nationals uh, English. I was their ESL teacher. And uh, first day of class, I think I shared this story with Bob. You know, I walked into the classroom, and it was a shoebox, and there were nine men in there big guys. We filled up the space really quick, and I'm in there teaching these guys English. English. They were all, almost all of them, bigger than me. And uh, I walked in the middle of this thing, and the bell rang. It was time for class to start. And I kind of walked up to the center of the top of the front of the class, and... Um, most of the men sat down except for Chico. Chico didn't sit down. So it was on. The confrontation for position power was on. I thought, oh shit, oh god. Okay. Just go with this thing, Deport. Just go with this. Chico walked right up to me and walked past me. Whew. Went behind the chalkboard and, and pulled out um, this black bag of that was filled with water, black plastic bag. Filled with water. Brought it out and sat it in the middle of the room. Then he walked to the other end of the classroom and shuffled behind another cupboard and pulls out a stick. I thought, oh, man. And he comes to the middle of the room, and he takes the stick and puts it underneath a a knot, in between a knot in the bag, and there in the middle of the classroom, Chico starts doing pull-ups. The curls curls this thing right in the middle of the class now he's got a student sitting right there he's got a student sitting there and we're all really close. Of course he has the full attention of the class and it's you know I'm in your face motherfucker what do you do about it? And I thought just go you know go with the energy don't resist don't don't change it move with it. And um I said, I said Chico, this is your workout." I said, yeah. I said, well, do you mind if um, if we can uh, write about your workout?" I said what?" I said, well let me do this. Let me see if I can write a sentence about what you're doing. I looked at the other guys. This white motherfucker, he's a crazy son of a bitch. I said, no, I want to write a sentence. So I got up on the board and I said, Chico has beautiful muscles. And he laughed. The other guys laughed. And I thought, the energy is changing. I said, well, Chico, I want you to continue to do your workout. Do whatever it is, you know, because I'm watching... Muscles look good. I'd like the rest of the class to watch Chico and you also write a sentence, and we're going to share them with Chico uh, when you're done. Papers went on the desk. They all started writing sentences about Chico. He loved it because he was the center of attention. There was no confrontation. He finished his workout. He sat down because he wanted to hear what everyone had to say about him. And we made it through. And from that moment, Chico then became my advocate. And no one messed with the teacher because Chico was in my camp. It's it's a helpful story to me because uh, I try to apply it in my life that, that energies come from wherever they come. I don't know where the hell energy is coming from half the time. But in an old life, I would fight and resist push and pull. Uh, in this new wave of my development uh, on the path of light, I'm, I'm, my work is to be with it. I love the metaphor of dance, to dance with it, learn from it, integrate with it. I do have to confess, I'm in closing, that I feel like I'm becoming less a Buddhist and more a Taoist. But who knows? Talk to me tomorrow. And so that's where my path is, uh, leading to open heart, being open to outcome, not attached to outcome, and wanting to thank you, uh, the Gay Buddhist Fellowship, for your profound uh, support and unconditional love uh, for me in this process. Um, You have been the single most potent haven of, of love, uh, safety, and um, growth in the last seven years. Um, I also want, to, in closing, to express again my apologies uh, to the gay community as grandiose um, and maybe even arrogant as that sounds, um... I acknowledge that by my sexual misconduct, I contributed um, to the pain of our struggle for liberation, that my conduct played right into the hands of uh, homophobia and anti-gay hatred in the culture. They have now a wonderful story to prove their point. Um, um, as, As wrong and misguided as it is, They got a little grist for their, for the mill, for their mill, from my story. For that, uh, I uh, apologize, and, uh, and I am. Um, I wish I could change it, but I, uh, I can't. So my work is to move forward, and to continue to bring healing uh, in the middle way. In a soft way. My goal is just to be quiet. So I don't like being here. In this position. Question and response. Right. I'm not good with answers. So. Yeah. I don't have answers. So. Um, no answers is necessary. I think I would simply like to express gratitude for each and story. And I congratulate you. Because while we may not have status in those areas, Expressed the status of, of the disability and as a human being, and at the base, that is was most important. I just saw a child. I Oh, man. He's gonna lead this. <laughs> I'm very, very impressed. Although, that you've been to this hardship to love you that way. But your recognition of the whole predicament, put it so positive way. To listen to your life or soul set some guidelines for someone else. You will positively deal with all the things. So you're able to submerge, uh, to uh, come above all the predicament and deal dealing with things that stay on, submerge under the predicament, and deal with that. So I'm very, very impressed with one thing, though. Personally, I'm not got that far. would we'll get both a credit. <laughs> 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 <Okay. sighs> thank you. Uh. Thank you. Know, I think I want to thank you. That is echoed with my firm, what I think showed the firm. was very powerful. I've i the like, like, mm-hmm. years, I've learned mm-hmm. before, it was, about days, I think, like, was very powerful. Uh, I'm just curious what what your thoughts might be about this big Republican scandal of the Spokane mayor of his name is Jim But it's, it's interesting because at least when you were struggling to, to deny your gayness, you 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 didn't act in an evil way, you were promoting gay rights, you just weren't identifying yourself as such. Whereas this guy was out there persecuting gays and lesbians. At the same time, struggling with his own gayness and his position of power and influence that he had. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, dude, I'm, I'm sure. Pressure rises more falls. This so much harder. I just wonder what your thoughts were. On. Well, my heart goes out to him. Um, he hates uh, the gift of his gayness and translates that into attack. And I'm sad uh, for that hatred and feel responsible for contributing to it in some ways. And, um, repression as uh, my experience is the uh, seedbed for so much unnecessary suffering and an enormous degree of repression around his his gayness. Uh, he's bought into hating the fact that he's gay and and uh, that's, that's the work that he does. Ultimately, I'm hopeful uh, that his crisis will find um, some enlightenment. He will move to a place where he accepts his gift. I never um, hated my attraction for men. I was just really pissed at myself for keeping it in, not having the courage to, to, um, uh, to, to own it and to manifest it and express it. So I always, I envied gay people. I envied the men and women who were out. i was so proud of them. And, um, and wanted, I wanted to be like them. And so when I did come out, it was, I mean, it was celebration. And, um, I had, I had, uh, I have a deep res- abiding respect for the place that gayness plays in human history and in the human story um, I believe all people are specially gifted but one of the special dynamics of our gift is spirituality in my view and it also is celebration of sexuality and I've always had a sense of that so my work was really try to work with the homophobia within my community and um, put the best face of of human sexuality on on the dialogues. But um, I heard for him and I, uh, since I've come out I've had a number of experiences relationship with men who still have a lot of internalized homophobia. It startles me when I experience it. They're angry for what seems to be no logical reason. They're just pissed. And, um, And then, if I've been with them long enough, I get some clues to the fact that they're gay and they hate it. And and my sense is that's where he's at. You know, a lot of me wants to just put my arms around him and say, you know, not only is it (coughs) okay to be gay, it is profound gift. Let me help you find the way. But he'll, he'll... you know, I pray. Okay. Yeah. I thought like to share two thoughts with you actually not while listening to your story. One is of the elements in your story there are a bunch that directly experience, there are a bunch for which there are parallels, and there are a bunch for which there are no parallels at all. But to assure you that in no way will they, that any of that negatively affect our interaction. But also, there was a, there's a in the carnival, there's some, it's a big panel, I hate to call it a comic strip, called Coffee Ground or something like that. And not that long ago, they had this statement that I think is very relevant here that as we go through the world, we don't know the demons in a person's life, nor how well. My my heart goes out to, like, you know, Michael Jackson, gay and black, and can't own either of those profound gifts. Mm -hmm. And um, repression, again, manifests itself in so much unnecessary suffering for the whole world. You seen pictures of Michael when he was when he was black? Absolutely. I mean, I was in love with him. He was so beautiful, foxy. He's my age. Couldn't own that, and or you know whatever his energy life was around his blackness, and whatever life energy was around his gayness. Um, both just profoundly spectacular gifts of his humanity that were closeted, pushed down. And one of the beauties of the universe, the light will have its way. You know, our authenticity will manifest itself. The universe is determined. It's in the Buddhist realm. If it takes, you know, a few thousand lifetimes for it to happen, it's going to happen. Because that is my experience of the nature of the universe. This beauty will manifest. It's manifest now. Part of my work. And, and on your job, it's being yeah. <laughs> This is uh, to say you've struck a rich vein, it's an sort of understatement. Um, Howard is one of the people who has a prodigy to uh, speak to the song about your experience. I feel very validated. Um, I hope you'll forgive me for it. <laughs> Um, I'm working on it. Okay, yeah, this was a great uh, blessing, and you have um, very, very movingly um, shared sort of the mysterious capacity for hardship to bring dimensions of blessing that just, you know, is uh, quite uh, uncanny. And I can't thank you enough for sharing that. Um, and uh, you make me very proud. I, I, I hope. So, um, our thoughts, prayers, blessings with you um, on your journey, always. And thank you for your strength and honesty this morning. And to you, just one closing comment real fast. Um, Not a single day in prison went by that I did not receive mail. And in most cases, two to three letters every day. And many of them were from you. And they were um, very meaningful. And so um, I just want to thank Don Weeper and all of you who participate in the prison program. And that's life. That's that's light. Those letters are light. And secondly, uh, when I was at San Quentin, I was really afraid. And um, and Jack Busby came to visit me at San Quentin. It's just an ugly place to be. And there was this. We we had a square window about this big, about 12 inches of thick concrete between us. And there he sat in his very demure, calm, sophisticated, beautiful self. And his last words to me were, um, Howard, just, all I can say to you is, breathe. (laughs) Breathe. and that was um, an extremely powerful resource to breathe to go back to the breath and I'm grateful to the Buddhist path for for that profound teaching calling me back to to breath and thank you I'm done OK. I need to go to bed. OK. Here. <laughs> um, Are you the host? Yes. Do you want to? Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, for people who have not been here before, I want to invite you to tea and cookies outside in conversation. We have expenses, rent, uh, newsletter. Uh, we'll pass the roundable around. Five dollars is suggested, and if we can, how are we going to be going home to bed? So probably we won't be going out for a shared uh, meal. You Okay, let's get this Our request that he wants is to give it to him with as much love as we can.